The Creative Hour. This is Prince Shakur, your host. The Creative Hour is a podcast of conversations between artists about their life's most impactful moments. Season one was artists across mediums, but this is season two where I interview all writers. You can listen to The Creative Hour on any podcasting platform available, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Anchor FM. As well, The Creative Hour can be heard on Verge FM, an online DIY radio station here in Columbus, Ohio. If you wish to support the Creative Hour podcast, you can do it in a few ways. First, you can find it on any podcasting platforms that you use, like the podcast, and also rate it. Doing this is going to help other people find the Creative Hour. Another way that you can help the Creative Hour is by donating to its Patreon. By donating to the Patreon, you get early access to episodes of the Creative Hour, as well as exclusive content from my newsletter, Millennial Writer Life. So please donate at patreon.com forward slash P-R-S-H-A-K-U-R. Thank you for listening and please enjoy this episode of The Creative Hour. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of The Creative Hour. On this episode, we have Dr. Khadija Ali Coleman. Dr. Khadija Ali Coleman is a cultural curator, community organizer, nationally recognized speaker, and writer. Her work centers the social and political life experiences, history, and culture of the people of the African diaspora. A playwright, she has had more than a dozen of her plays presented publicly in venues throughout the country. Mariah's Maracas and the co-editor of the book Homeschooling Black Children in the U.S., Theory, Practice, and Popular Culture. Her work is featured in the anthology The Fire Inside, Collected Stories and Poems from Zora's Den, and the book Afrofuturism in Black Panther, Gender, Identity, and the Remaking of Blackness. She is the founder of the multidisciplinary arts group Liberated Muse, co-founder of the education research group Black Family Homeschool Educators and Scholars, and currently serving as the executive director of the nonprofit Hurston Wright Foundation. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Prince. It's great to be here. Yes, yes. Thank you for being here. And uh, and uh, I, I don't know, there's a lot of different directions that I want to go in. But I guess to start before we get into like childhood and everything, um, could you just kind of explain what the Hurston Wright Foundation does and what your position with them as a nonprofit is? Awesome. Yes, I will. So I have been with the Hurston Wright Foundation now since December 6th, 2021, (laughs) as the executive director. Um, But I've had the privilege of um, participating Hurston Wright um, Foundation activities prior to becoming the executive director. Um, And I had the privilege in 2018 to actually perform or present a a poem honoring Zora Neale Hurston at the Legacy Awards. Um, So Hurston Wright Foundation is an organization that was co-founded by the author Marita Golden. And she created the foundation to be a space um, that provides services, supports, and opportunities for Black writers. Um, And really with the intention of supporting Black writers on their journey um, to publication, but also recognizing that many um, writers are writing for self-healing or part of their their journey, their human process. And so we provide writing workshops. Um, We have a literary salon um, series um, 
And during these times of COVID, a lot of our programs and our services have gone virtual, as you can imagine. But we also have um, some exciting news that we're going to be sharing in the coming weeks about other um, opportunities that um, we are so honored and excited about being able to offer Black writers. Okay, thank you. And uh, and for those of you that don't know, um, I uh, got a Hurston Wright cro- uh, crossover award last year. And I mean, honestly, in a year where so many things were happening and I was, I don't know, last year was tough. So getting that award, I think, honestly, I don't know, I, couldn't, I can't even really describe how much it meant to me. I think it just... I was able to be affirmed by people that looked like me in my community, whether they were people that I knew closely or from far away. And so I think that was something that I really needed in a year where I was trying to sell my first book and Mm. I felt like so many different things were falling apart all around me. So for anyone out there who um, is interested in checking out more about the Hurston Wright Foundation, I definitely would encourage them. Oh, and many congratulations to you on that award. That The Crossover Award is an award that um, we do offer, and it's in partnership with ESPN's um, The Undefeated. So you winning that award is definitely acknowledgement of your um, literary prowess, um, and many congrats to you. I know that um, last year we had over um, 80 submissions for our college and crossover award. So know that, you know, your your award, um, you were selected out of many. And so I many congratulations to you on that. And knowing that you had a hard year and this is something that affirmed the artistic path that you're on just makes my heart swell. I'm so happy for you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And so I, I want to start by um, going back um, to the beginning or earlier years because that's kind of how I tackle talking to all of the artists that I uh, have on this show. So could you talk about what little Khadijah was like, uh, where ah. you grew up, <laughs> um, what were your parents like? So that that is, oh, wow. So I am, um, I'm two years away from the big five-o. And so when we go back, um, we're going back to the seventies. You know, I am, my, my parents, um, Met my mother was a student at the University of the District of Columbia, UDC, and back in the 70s it was called Federal City. And um, she met my father as a, she was volunteering for um, a, pro, a program that was in partnership with Federal City and Lorton Prison. My father was incarcerated. And my aunt was the facilitator of this or the, the program manager of this program and had um, gotten my mother to volunteer for this program. And one of the the participants was my father. And um, he was in this program to get a degree at, um, from the University of the District of Columbia. And um, so they met. And, you know, it's a whole story about, you know, we know about the prison industrial complex. And my father was actually incarcerated for something that he eventually was acquitted for. Um, and we know that story of, um, you know, many black men who have been um, falsely accused and incarcerated. And so how long was he incarcerated? Um, I, it, I, I believe it wasn't longer than a, a, a couple of years, but um, it was long enough for him to be able to get the support necessary to, um, you know, get the acquittal to, to for, you know, and that's a whole other story. But I, I, I 
wanted to just frame it that um, my mother was doing, and she was 18 at the time, doing this type of work in college. They met and they really, their relationship was really born from this Pan-African mindset of really wanting to um, activate and to really looking at their lives from a Pan-African perspective. And so when they began to live together and then I, here I come less than a year later, um, named Khadijah Ali Coleman, it's with, it's in the mindset of, um, black liberation. And so I really wanted to, to share that because, you know, I, I'm born in Washington, DC. Um, while they were attending federal city, I went to preschool at, a um, a church that Federal City ran their teacher program through. And so I'm being taught by aspiring teachers and that's where I learned how to read at the age of three. And my school was right across the street from Martin Luther King Library in Washington, DC, which is considered the flagship library. And I remember, you know, I remember back, that far back where we would walk across the street and MLK Library had puppet shows, but I just remember the books upon books and I loved reading. Wow. And reading for me was like unlocking some type of magic powers. Like I remember things that I had previously seen that just looked like lines and squiggly and then being able to decode them was just such a a magical moment for me. And I I remember that clearly being a three-year-old learning to read. And and what kind of kid would you say you were that reading had such a big impact on you? Like what, like, I don't know, I'm kind of thinking of it as a puzzle. Like what would, what did it serve for you? Oh my goodness. Um, It just, it really armed me with this ability now to give, um, to to craft worlds and to create, to craft these environments um, on paper that had really just only lived in my head, you know, and making sense of, of experiences and feelings and sensations and being able to, um, to read was just, you know, I, and I became just a voracious reader. So, and my, my family members realized that very early. It's like, wow, like I'm reading everything. I remember, um, for those who are, are in my, my generation may remember when, um, Disney used to sell, um, the book sets with the Cinderella, a lot of the things that are in in films now, they have like book sets. I remember my grandmother buy me that book set. My grandmother was like my, my book dealer, you know, (laughs) my my book pusher, Um, you know, and she introduced me to so many things um, that were popular before my generation, but I still had such an, like Nancy Drew, Nancy Drew, is way before my time, but I was reading Nancy Drew books. Um, she got me hooked on Anna Green Gables by Ellen Montgomery. Um, so I was just reading, 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 and I loved it. And so, so much to the point that, you know, when the bookmobile would come in my neighborhood, I would get all these books. And then I started getting things that I probably shouldn't have been reading. Like that's when I started reading romance novels, but reading so much that my mother at a time had to be like, look, you need to get your chores done because you are just in your (laughs) room. (laughs) It was an obsession. So that's really what early, you know, growing up books 
And so it then became when playtime came with my friends, it's like, all right, now my mother has, you know, my mother's gone. I have people in the house. <laughs> I'm like 10, I'm not even that old, like eight, nine and have my friends over. I'm going in her closet where she has like her, her sparkly dresses and things. And I'm like, let's do the whiz. And so I'm assigning people. Wow. Heart. So, yeah. so this is really what childhood was for me. It was just such a magical moment to, um, just to live my best life um, through yeah. books and through um, play. And I've and I've asked a few different people on this podcast about this, um, but I I think about how stories are told to us when we're younger and how stories enter our childhood, whether it's through stories that people tell over the dinner table or when your mom is gossiping or when like people are at church. And so I guess I don't know. I, I guess I'm just curious about. How did the significance of stories and storytelling change for you as you got older? Because I, I love that you're speaking now to like a sense of wonder and like what it offered you and how there's just like this pure sense of imagination. But how did that develop as you got older? I was so interested in, in crafting stories. Um, and so as I got older, I always just I tended to gravitate toward opportunities where storytelling was something that I could do um, unapologetically and and without restraint. And what I mean is um, I like to teach and I went into spaces working with children. I went into spaces um, where, whether as a journalist or um, wherever I went, I always saw where, where storytelling could take place. Um, and I, I've always worked with children. I've always worked with young people, students. Those are the spaces where I can encourage others to give into your imagination, give into it and let it fly free. But it also is socially acceptable um, in those spaces to engage in, um, you know, activities where storytelling is really a large component of it. And I use it as as a teaching tool. So when I was growing up, it was so interesting because folks are impressed by it on one hand, but then on another hand, and my mother in particular, because my mother was a math, my late mother was a mathematician. It was at a certain point where it's like, okay, this is all good and well, but how is this going to translate into a job? Yeah. <laughs> how yeah. how is this, you know, so she for her, it wasn't so easy to see how this is something that can be applied into the work, you know, being an the adult, workforce. taking yeah. care of yourself. This is some child stuff. And especially for her, because her grandmother who raised her for her first nine years of her life before she was adopted really was very similar, very much like me. And she would say that she was like, you just like. My grandmother, because my grandmother would take, you know, my grandmother had her participate in plays um, at Howard University, do community theater. My mother was Helen Keller. Um, My grandmother at 70 something was going and auditioning for variety shows, doing aerobics and making my mother come with her. And so for my mother, this this was not fun for her. This was not something that was her thing because she's very she was a mathematician in science so when she saw this in me it was like okay this is all good and well but then what are you going to do and so that was um kind of what 
I realized that this wasn't, you know, I didn't get from her, oh, you know, you can go and you can become a playwright because she didn't, it was this division that she saw. So not until I went to college did I realize um, that there are folks who engage in creative activities and can, and this is something that um, can be a vocation. And And that it's not necessarily only if you're called a playwright or if you're called a, a dancer or a singer, these things can also be infused in your work as a teacher or your work as um, working for a, a nonprofit or some type of community-based um, organization. So, yeah, it was an evolution. It really was something that I had to learn was that um, being an artist and being a, a writer didn't necessarily um mean that you you're only that if you're getting a paycheck doing that or if someone calls you that like you can be you know and my major in college was actually interdisciplinary studies um yeah. it was african-american studies in mass media but that's when i started to realize that everything around me is is interdisciplinary like it's mm. not one thing and so once i re- i realized that i i knew that i didn't have to become dependent on um labels or job roles or, you know, jobs to yeah. really identify as the writer that I, I always was as soon as I began to read. Like I, I think about, it was kind of similar for me. I grew up with immigrant parents and reading and writing was like something that they saw that was positive for me in terms of school. And they're like, Oh, you can write papers and get good grades. And then um, like, I remember very distinctly when I had my like it was a guidance counselor meeting, like my third year of high school, which was my last year of high school because I went to a three-year high school. Mm -hmm. And my guidance counselor and my mother were both just like, you can't go to college for English. Like, it's not going to make you money. And I was like, are you paying? (laughs) And they weren't. (laughs) So um, so I I guess I think about that. And I don't know. And and, and maybe this is kind of tied to the question I asked you earlier about what did stories give you? But I also think about for you to get to college and to I think like that if you would call it an incubation period when you're younger can be really important because you identify as a reader, you identify as someone that loves stories. And I feel like that can be something that like gets codified into your DNA almost. And so it can be a strength that you can carry with you throughout life, especially especially as a black person. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I, so it, it's so interesting when you shared your um your own story. So I'm I'm the mother of an 18 year old who, um, you know, I homeschooled her off and on for 13 years. But I, I as I share my experience and, and hearing what what you just shared, I realized that one of the number one things that I wanted to make sure when I had when I became a parent was that I wanted to um, see what it was that my child aspired to and and make sure that in a no hope bars way, I was going to be a supporter of that. And um, and realizing that um, I may not see all of the possibilities, but that doesn't mean that those possibilities don't exist. And I will say that for my daughter, um, I have learned a lot through her that her journey is not my journey. And I and I say that knowing that that wasn't something 
my mother necessarily realized um, it was it was harder for her to separate who she was from who her children are and and for her to see the possibilities in us because, you know, of her experience. But there was no one really to to, to mother her and to tell her how to, you know, how to do that. I had the experiences. Um, I, I've had mentors along the way and just people that weren't necessarily who weren't family who who let me know who affirmed aspects of myself. So very early on when my daughter began to read too, and she had her reading journey, I saw that she was a writer as soon as she was a reader. And that was something that she always aspired to. And so she's now 18 and she's majoring in English. So that's why when you said that she's majoring in English with a creative writing emphasis, um, she's on full scholarship. And she's on full scholarship because of um, the things that she did before she got to her college where she, you know, she was paid as a, she's gotten grants as a filmmaker, as a, um, as a writer. And so um, I just, I feel that it's so interesting that I identify as a writer, although I've done different types of artistic things because in order to do all these other artistic things, I had to write. So I'm a singer, but I sing songs that I've written. Yeah, I'm yeah. a playwright. You know what I mean? And so it's just it's really interesting. And um, it's all about expression for me. So I it goes back to why I thought it was magical is because I was able to when I was reading, I was able to decode these ideas and these thoughts and these things that were then incorporated into my own imagination. But then I was able I was armed with the ability to create this for other people and to express mm -hmm. these things that before I just saw them, I just knew or felt them. But now I have the magic power. I have the tools in order to express this and to share this with other people. So writing has just always been just um, a vehicle for me to grow, for me to learn and for me to express and really to engage with people that um, I'm not even aware all the time that I'm engaging with because they may have read something or seen something of mm -hmm. mine performed and it impacted them. And even if they don't know me personally, they're impacted from this expression that I've created. Yeah. Do, do you think of writing as like a companion or like a true love in a way? Oh, it's... Yeah, it's a um Yeah, it's it it's something that I I can't imagine at this point um not having as a part of me. It's it's a part of me. You know, words, the the ability to um to just articulate my thoughts. You know, you you have people who say, you know, I'm not a writer or um you know, I even look at, you know, people who prefer to talk on the telephone instead of text, you know, that you kind of get a sense of, I'm, yeah. and, and just in case anybody cares, I'm that person that I, I do not like talking on the phone. I would oh, prefer yeah. communicating through words. Yeah. You know, words are always the first place I'm going to um, go. Like writing is always the first on my checklist, if I have to communicate with somebody, I would prefer to communicate through written form um, instead of speaking. And I'm a, I'm a, I, I think that I speak well. I think that I'm articulate enough to communicate well through spoken word. But I definitely prefer the written word. Um, 
So writing is so much a part of who I am. Um, and I can't even imagine not being able to write. Oh my gosh, just the thought of it um, is is a frightening. Like, just do, do you remember the first time that you realized your writing moved someone else? It's so interesting that you asked that because um, I watched the 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 latest episode of Abbott Elementary. Oh, um, yeah. which I, I love that. Sh- I love that show. I uh, think Quinta is just so talented. And um, as someone who has both been a teacher for a very short period of time before I just started working um, out of school time um, programs <laughs> for many of the reasons why what that show depends. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah. I love that show. I love, love, love it. And the latest episode um, revolved around this whole notion of gifted education, which I've always hated. I've always Mm, hated. Oh, my gosh. We could could have a whole conversation about that because I... Right. Uh, right. And, and and as someone that was labeled that and no, and I know that the reason why I don't remember testing for it, but I, I know that one of the reasons why I was um, put in the gifted program initially um, when in elementary school was because um, and I was telling my partner this. He was laughing because he was like he could so see it. I remember when the the um, gifted and talented teacher came to our class and was teaching us. Um, remember the brainstorming web, how you mm. have the idea and all the t- and so I was introduced to that. I guess fourth or fifth grade, and I remember when she taught that to us, and I remember saying, "This is fantastic." <laughs> <laughs> just having this level of engagement, like, okay, so, and I, and so that is how I responded to learning, like, and I would engage with my, my teachers in a way, like we're having a conversation, like, really? And I was so into mythology, Greek mythology in particular, yeah. in, um, in fourth, in elementary school, uh, starting at fourth or fifth grade. And so I would have these conversations and I always, I remember looking back how teachers would always just be so impressed. Like they're having this conversation <laughs> with this little person who, and that was, and, and that was had a lot to do with the fact that I read so much. So I was able to engage in these conversations with adults because I, I was really well read at, at a very young age. And so when I would I, I would ask questions about these things that I'm learning in these books and you know how you would read books that have words that you don't have the experience pronouncing. Mm-hmm. So I would have these like, you know, how do you pronounce this or what is and so knowing what it meant because it's within the context of of the written word, but not necessarily knowing how to pronounce it because it's not part of your regular conversation with people. And so I know that that is the reason why I was placed in gifted mm-hmm. and talented. Um because I know that I was um teachers, some teachers like to work with the children who are easier to work with. Like, you don't, and, and already come to the table with having a set of skills that aren't necessarily born from their engagement in the class or the school. And so a lot of gifted and talented programs um, exist working with this population of children who already have the services and supports in place because of their families, prior education, whether another school. So they are set up for many of the, all of the reasons why that episode of Abbott Element, Elementary was written and what it addressed is that it, it sets up this school within a school 
where many children are not receiving the learning opportunities that all children benefit from. Right. And so um, I I say that to say that um, that really shaped, you know, having these experiences um, as a learner where, you know, I'm, given privileges because of this background and reading and whatever, and then going in becoming an educator, mm-hmm. I found that writing has been um, a wonderful exercise, has been, I use it now as a tool of engagement with all the spaces that I step into. Um, because kind of like I, an, it's, it's like a, a tool of equalizing that space in a way, yes. or it can be. Yes, yes, yes. And I and I, I, I believe that um, unfortunately, we, in, you know, in, in schools um, and even in workspaces, we don't realize we think of writing as being um, this for a certain population. Like this is for mm. people that are really good at it. Yeah. Or this is yeah, for, yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, but, I, and I and I. I, I was really, I, I had two different thoughts and you just helped me connect them again, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I really am excited. I don't know. I've never really talked about this whole gifted thing and it's such a big topic for me because I grew up with my mother, my stepfather until he was incarcerated and an older brother. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I guess I also, like while you were talking, I think about the role of the gifted black child in the family mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like how families whether dysfunctional or not, all attribute roles to different individuals in the family and how as a kid who's black and I mean, I grew up in like, I don't know, it was like a lower income neighborhood, like the hood. And and Mm -hmm. I don't know. And I think about the particular kind of responsibility that it put on my shoulders, because Mm -hmm. just to give you some context, like when I was, so for elementary school, I went to a charter school. And then when I was 10, I had a teacher come to my mother and tell her, like, if your kid goes to public school after this, like, he's not going to be served the way he should be. And he's not going to, like, he's not going to be treated well. Um, And so my mother sent me to a Catholic school. Mm -hmm. um, And around this time, I was also realizing that I was gay. My Mm -hmm. stepfather also went to to prison. Um, And I also, around that time, I, there's this program called the REACH program. It's, It's gifted Black kids basically take academic classes during the summer for three summers in a row. So Mm -hmm. I'd show up there all summer and take English science and math classes in the morning, have lunch, then you have two electives and an athletic activity. And I did that for three summers because like they gave some of the kids scholarship money. And, but Mm -hmm. once I got there, I realized, oh, I thought all these other kids would be poor. I'm one of 10 people in this program of 120 kids and I'm one of 10 poor kids. Mm. Like I was bullied a lot, but the weight that I felt mm-hmm. in terms of like the whole gifted program thing is that it, it taught me to lie for the sake of this yeah. greater goal, even at a young age, because school, yeah. I think for young black kids can be such a measurement of worth and value. And as you yeah. were talking earlier, I thought of the question, like what does a world where black kids are affirmed creatively, like yeah. what would that look like and how would that subvert this notion of the gifted program. Cause I also think like there were kids in my class that loved rap music and loved hip hop. And because mm-hmm. I was put in this gifted space and because it placed me mentally at the time 
in a way where I thought I was better than some of these kids, Mm -hmm. even as a writer, like there are things that I could have learned from them and they could have learned from me. Um, So it's just interesting to think about. Yeah. And well, it's that everything that you're saying is really um, foundational to, to, what I believe in and what I use my writing um, and, and critical thinking skills um, about now when I when I talk about education, you know, I um, had a book come out last week, um, Homeschooling Black Children in the U.S., Theory, Practice and Culture. Um, and it's an anthology of, of sorts um, with homeschooling black parents. I have a chapter in there, but also um, researchers, but mostly black homeschooling parents talking about the different reasons um, why they chose to homeschool. And um, I will tell you that your experience is is a, a major reason why I chose to homeschool my daughter. You know, she was on that gifted um, and talented track as well. Um, and in a school that the entire school was supposed to cater to that where, but um in the same vein, you have a teacher who contacts me because they want me to talk to her about um, when she finishes her work before all of her her peers, she starts to write. And the teacher wants me to tell her to stop writing. So the teacher wants me to be complicit mm. oh, in wow. stopping my daughter from doing the one thing she's been doing since she could read um, because the teacher couldn't think of ways to like even create a corner or something in their classroom where people who finish go something to some, you know, and, yeah. and, 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 and so when we even look at education and we look at um, the, the skills and the ways that we encourage children to, um, from a strength-based approach, what is it that children are gravitating to and how is it, can, how can this now become a tool for them to, um, to, to love learning and looking at learning as this ongoing process that never ends for anybody, no matter how old you are. And so um, a lot of our learning experiences as black people is filled with trauma because all of our experiences, if they're not severely racialized, then they really are, they revolve around this, um, this fight for, um, having body agency because we're always in conflict with adult, you know, as children in conflict with adults who look at complicit, being complicit as, Mm. um, as, as their rights, um, this Mm. authority over the body agency and the creative and learning experiences of young people. And so a lot of what we're doing as we get older is really un being becoming untethered from these false beliefs that we have about learning and creativity is very much a part of that. And so you have people, you have grown people who can say, I am not creative because they look at creativity as being separate from who they are and what it is that they, how they show up in the world because they look at creativity as being solely for writers, solely for dancers or singers, but not realizing that our creativity shows up in the way that we show compassion for other people people, the ways that we cook, the ways that we talk to another person, our creativity manifests in so many different ways. Um, And so, yeah, I I, I just, and so even when someone asked me about writing, I look at my ability to write not only in the, the creative, the create the creative elements of my writing, but also I write um, for liberation I, to liberate these ideas and these thoughts and be able to have them documented so that they exist and live even beyond my my human life, you know, so. 
I appreciate this so much because I feel like you just keep saying things that I'm like, I'm thinking about complicity. And then maybe this is a two-part question. For you, how has your art and creative practice helped you overcome that complicity that is sometimes drilled into us at a young age, especially mm -hmm. as Black people? And how do you view it as a tool that you've used in like educational spaces? Well, I, I feel right now that the biggest benefit that I'm able to um, provide the world is the work that I do with documenting, um, you know, books are a form of doc. I'm really big. Um, I, I've worked with museums and, and with libraries now for over 10 years in different capacities, whether I'm presenting a performance or whether I'm, I'm curating an exhibit, because I really am finding value in this whole idea of documenting through books, archiving through exhibits, and really recognizing um, the significance of that for us as Black people, because so much of our experiences in this country revolve around telling us <laughs> really um, not, you know, taking our cultural contributions and renaming them and then giving them back to us as in, in, in the false um history of where they come from. And so when we take ownership of how we document our experiences, then we are creating this archive of our history. And so I really believe that writers are the culture keepers of our culture as Black people in this country. And so I um, have begun doing professional developments with, um, with teachers. I have a group that I started, Black Family Homeschool Educators and Scholars, um, which started when I got um, offered the publishing opportunity for the book that just came out. But what I then did was um, create spaces so through social media so that um, parents, and you know, with COVID-19 and all the things happening with school, so many Black parents like, oh, hell no. Nah. So like, you know, thinking about these conversations about homeschooling are now coming up when before, you know, just two years ago, homeschooling was really on the fringes. And then when people thought of homeschooling, it was like crazy white people, um, fun mm -hmm. where they, you know, lock the children up in the, in the attic or, you know, is um, hail Jesus and just crazy stuff. Right. So now, now we're having these conversations where black people, first of all, are not a monolith that you can homeschool if you're single, if you're working, um, there's all these, you know, different dynamics involved. And so I look at the work that I'm doing where I can have a conversation with a parent and tell them about these terms such as de-schooling or unschooling, where learning doesn't have to look like our ideas of traditional um, classrooms, mm. where it could be self-directed and um, interest-led, you know. And these are this is this is radical for black people, yeah. particularly when we look at the history in this country with education, you know, whether it's Brown versus Board of Education or even further when during enslavement where we couldn't even read, yeah. um, you know, my, my great grandparents were um, part of the group of educators who were creating schools for black people shortly after, uh, you know, uh, emancipation in the early 1900s, creating these Rosenwald schools, mm. which were funded by um, a Jewish philanthropist and, and Booker T. Washington. And he's one black man, um, but many black leaders will partner with Rosenwald to create these black schools. So 
we always were interested in being educated. Um, and our the beginning of our schools never looked like what public schools look like now. Mm. And even if folks know the history of, um, you know, with desegregation and magnet schools and you talk about charter schools, none of that is what um, our four uh, mothers and forefathers, our ancestors created when yeah. they created schools. And so I look at homeschooling as our return to us mm. really taking ownership of the ways that we're teaching our children. And at the forefront of it is our cultural identity and, and determining what we're going to um, what we're what we're going to learn. But also that learning is this powerful um, process that's always on going and never is just about what we see in traditional education. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you're a lover of all forms of art, or at least I hope you're a lover of writing. This is because my debut book, When They Tell You To Be Good, is coming out October 4th, 2022 with Tin House Books. The memoir charts my political coming of age, and it follows me as I become radicalized while traveling and writing in the footsteps of James Baldwin. This book is available for pre-order right now. The easiest way you can do that is by checking the description of this episode and also by checking out the link princeshakur.card. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about um, my mother. Uh, she, when she immigrated to the U.S., she was 15, 16, and she was a part of a desegregation busing program. Really? I think for about maybe half of her first year of high school. And she rarely talks about it, like barely mentions it. I know it was all kinds of traumatic. It's like, trauma, yeah. Teenager coming from Jamaica, speaking Patois, like yes. winter. Um, but like all throughout growing up, my mother would say to me, like, I'm telling you and your brother go, to go to school because I wish I had someone to tell me to keep going. And I mm. remember growing up and being like, mom, like, do you want to, like, you could try to get your associates or like, and granted, some of that was like she probably had to wait until she was a full citizen in certain ways. Um, but th- over the last year, she uh, went to phlebotomy school and studied and got her phlebotomy license. And now oh, she's no. like, I don't know. And it was it's just it was really beautiful because I was like, I don't know she'd call me and she'd be like, I don't know if I can do this. And I'm like, if I could do it, you can, too. And so it's right. beautiful in that way, like seeing my mother open up to this process and kind of be like, oh, I am capable of this because mm-hmm. I knew that she wanted us to be and even seeing me graduate college was such mm-hmm. a beautiful thing but mm-hmm. to have her offer that what, what she wanted for herself back what she to, for her to offer to herself what she wanted for us it was just really amazing to see that is wonderful and you're so exactly right with um the trauma she probably went through because that period of time um where you know, when we talk about desegregation and busing, it's really these black children who had to leave their immediate neighborhoods to go across town, usually to um, to go to a school that where it was openly hostile 
or um, they don't let you eat in the cafeteria or you have to right. go to the gym in the hallways or you can right. only go to the bathroom at one time right. in the day. Right. And imagine what that does to a child psychologically in terms of how they're growing. They're going through all of these um, experiences of um and, and looking at the world to kind of affirm who they are as a person. So if this is what is being affirmed to you throughout the entire school day, you're definitely not going to walk away unscathed. Um, and, and definitely the messages that you subsequently are bestowing on your children or to other young people are going to be marred by the, these negative experiences. And it's so interesting because in the county that I live in, Maryland, it's a predominantly black county and considered one of the wealthiest in the United States because of more proportionally more affluent um, black people. But the reason why it's predominantly black now is because there was white flight. So many of mm. uh, many of the black people that are in this county um, flocked to the suburbs from Washington, D.C., and then the white folks who lived in the county left because so many black people were coming. But before all of them left, the schools um, began magnet programs. And this was to encourage white students, white families to keep their white students into the school. Mm. So magnet programs were created with the intention of having these specialty programs in schools um, so that white folks white children, white parents would want to keep their children in the schools while the the school at large would not engage in whatever this specialty offering was. And so what you, what you had ultimately is, yes, desegregation in the sense that you have these black and white children coming to these schools together, but it's really segregation because it's a school within a school. And these things still exist in my county and other in other um, cities. And we really need to evaluate what these things are doing to children, because if you have the resources and um, the, the possibility, the capability of providing this as a program, and you know that they work and you know that they prepare students for other opportunities, why wouldn't this be something that you offer the entire school mm. um, and all the children? And I, I look at that, that that's another layer to this idea of giftedness. Um, and, and what it does is create this competitive notion that, um, you know, only a few can are deserving of many of the learning experiences, you know, that are offered that, any child, you know, experiential yeah. learning, the ability to touch, to move, to to and, and to have the multiple intelligences um, inc included in the the curriculum. Yeah. Why is, is that only afforded to a certain amount of kids yeah. or I, a certain type? And I also think about a lot too. Like after I did that reach program, I went to basically a magnet school in Cleveland uh, where you had to apply, take a test. And then it was a school building where on each of the three floors, there was a different school. There was early mm -hmm. college, science and medicine, mm -hmm. architecture and design. And I went to early college, which was the three-year high school. Mm -hmm. And I even think like, and I really think back to school sometimes and I'm like, I don't think I was actually that gifted. I just think they, adults thought it was weird that I like to read. Something. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. also just like, yeah. Yeah. That's the exact same thing I just told you about my experience is that you showed an interest. And that is really that is. And, and I think that that interest, they see it, it'll make it easy for them to to deal with you. You know, they yeah. don't have to. It, it, and it's very um, 
you, you know, low maintenance. You don't have to really mm. worry about crafting and engaging um, curriculum if you have these children who already have this motiv- motivation to reading and what have you. So again, it speaks to what are, what are the children already coming to the table with instead of what is the skill mm. of the facilitator um, in terms of in facilitating a learning environment. And so I am by no means like anti-school I come from a history of, of educators, but I really, um, I'm really pro children in terms of I really am, a, you know, how we treat our children impacts um, our future because they become adults who then um, are responsible for this world. So if we are um, treating children in a way where they they don't matter, where we believe that they're in these empty vessels and we don't have to care about how they are developing the skills to be able to navigate and, and have this body agency, then then what kind of adults will they become? And what yeah. kind of future does that lead for us and mean for us and in, in the future of our planet and just our environment? And so all of these things are, cre- are connected. And so even when we think about creativity to bring it back to, you know, what you were asking before, I think that it's really imperative that we, recognize that creativity um, isn't merely about entertainment, Mm. that creativity is really about how we envision possibilities outside of what is wrote, what already exists. It's about innovation. It's about what possibilities are... if, you know, looking at our imagination and these worlds and these experiences and things that we're envisioning, creativity is about the actualization of it. How are we bringing it from within to without in ways that are impacting people positively? And, you know, you can teach people how to, um, you can't teach someone to to be creative, but you can teach someone and encourage someone um, to trust their instincts and to trust that, um, you know, that they are capable and affirm their interests in that those things are necessary for someone to then um, be their self-actualized creative self. Yeah. And, and I think it's beautiful for me to think about in a certain way where I think like loving reading and writing was this thing that pushed me into these gifted spaces Mm -hmm. and even in those spaces I was exposed to things that I wasn't entirely comfortable with or I didn't understand or that it just took time for me to learn about Mm -hmm. but it's like the thing that I loved that made adults want me to be there writing also helped me process the trauma of Mm -hmm. being gifted uh, in quotation marks and so it's just interesting how it can be an endlessly like cyclical process and how your relationship to the craft can change based on like where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and, um, and I have a few more questions cause I wanted to kind of pivot to some other things. I loved uh, covering this though. Um, <laughs> but I kind of wanted to talk about like, uh, like your spoken word. Um, cause your, your, uh, poetry name is Khadija moon. <laughs> Yeah, so that is my stage name um, okay. for my music and, and my spoken word, yes. Okay, great. Um, and so I guess I uh, just one question is, um, how do you approach when you write in different mediums, whether it's 
a spoken word or playwriting or or something else? Like, are there certain parts of your brain or things that you tend to try to unpack in certain mediums? Um, that's an excellent question because there definitely is a different approach um, I have to writing um, a piece that I know I'm going to perform versus writing a piece where um, it will be on the page and that someone will read. It's it's definitely a, a different um, thought process and 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 approach. Um, you know, for the performance piece, you definitely. Well, I definitely um, focus on cadence. What are the things, you know, what are the things that I can emphasize um, through metaphor, but also um, when performing, I can do it with an ease where the listener is still is going to want to be engaged. And I'm not speaking over, over, Mm. you know, it's not too much metaphor where it's like, what, you know, Um, I'm not, my spoken word um style is not like it's not like hip hop right <laughs> so like with hip hop is I, I think the metaphor sometimes nest, um outweigh the actual content or the meaning for me i real the content really is important and so if i'm presenting something it usually is um a a lot of my spoken word is is political um in some way or, um, you know, it, it's easier for me to perform political pieces than it is. I'm still growing into, in, into being able to speak about personal things because it becomes upsetting. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, and I've I've cried and, and realized I probably shouldn't be doing this right now because I can't get I can't perform this without being upset. It, it, have- opened, it opens up the wound too far. <laughs> right. Yeah, because I because I really wanted to ask you about because I did spoken word in college and mm-hmm. in an acting class. And sometimes I'd be like. Like, I got to go home and take it. Right. (laughs) But that's vulnerability. So that, so, you know, you are exercising a muscle, you are growing, but, um, you know, I hope for about three years, I was um, poetry host at Busboy and Poets in Washington, D.C., the flagship one on U Street. And um, I had to really be cognizant as to what were the pieces that I was performing because I'm the host. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to perform a piece where I'm going to break down (laughs) and create, Mm -hmm. I create the tone of the evening. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, you know, those are the kinds of things and the choices that I had to make is, am I, what type of tone am I creating? But in general, um, my spoken word. So I, the pieces that I know are going to live in the page and they're probably in a book or an anthology. There's definitely um, an attention to placement of words. You know, I, I'm really into free verse. I love the, um, you know, I, I, I can't believe I didn't um, even share when I was talking about where I went to preschool. And when I learned to read the first poet that I was introduced to was Nikki Giovanni because she wow. had come to Federal City to um, to perform oh, or to present. And so my my parents, they the first poetry, the first book, really, that I remember was Spin a Soft Black Song by Nikki Giovanni. It's a, it's a um, children's book of her poetry. Wow. And so, but how it was presented in the book that I had, um, 
all, you know, everything wasn't linear. It was creatively, the words were creatively placed. So that's my introduction to poetry and to ideas. So, you know, all of that matters. And I think, you know, and even with songwriting, knowing where to pl- place the bridge versus, you know, and I'm still learning about songwriting. My partner is my producer and he's, um, He's brilliant and teach always teaches me something different to um, about songwriting. You know the difference between a refrain versus a chorus versus um, versus a verse. You know, <laughs> so all of these things matter, and that those are the things that I pay attention to um, based on what type of writing I'm doing. What does being a black writer, an artist, an educator mean to you? I know that. Um, I believe that I have a responsibility um, for being authentic um, as a black writer. I think that I would be doing a disservice to myself, to my truth, and to folks who are introduced to my work if um, my work wasn't honest. Um, And that's something that I think, I guess, honesty, the the levels of honesty are relative, meaning that I think that I'm very honest with the things that I write about when I write about society or politics, or I am still growing in terms of being completely open about certain aspects of my personal history, because um, there are wounds there, but writing helps me with that. and so what I share publicly is is still a process, even though I have a lot of things out there. Um, it's still not all of the things that are as vulnerable and personal as they can be, because I'm still working my way up to that. So um, as a black writer, I think that it's important for me to have grace for myself um, and to have um but still be committed to being honest in the things that I share, because as I said earlier, I think that we are the culture keepers of our, of our history. Thank you. And um, for people that want to find you and your work out there, where can they find you? KhadijahAliColeman.com uh, is a great portal to all the spaces. <laughs> I have a lot of spaces online. Um, but I also encourage folks to check out liberatedmuse.com. Um, that's a great site as well. But KhadijahAliColeman.com and LiberatedMuse.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the Creative Hour. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Prince. It was a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>